Amen. Well, if you would take your Bible at this time, and we're going to turn to the uh, Gospel of Luke, Luke number two. And I know it's an odd thing for me to say, turn to Luke on a Sunday morning. We're usually turning to the book of Mark, uh, but today we're going to take a little bit of a break from the, that series in Mark and uh, consider some a uh, couple Christmas thoughts as we uh, go through this season. And uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter number 2, which of course um, records what happened there as Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. And if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, um, we'll read verses 1 through 7, very familiar passage. I'm sure we'll read it a few times this month if you haven't already. But Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary as a spoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for uh, this precious passage that details uh, your plan in Jesus being born in Bethlehem. God, as we consider this special little town, uh, I pray, Lord, you'd help us to understand what your word has to say about it and help us, Lord, to understand the significance of what took place there on that first Christmas night as Jesus was born uh, there and laid in a manger. And God, I pray that you would uh, help me as I... Um, preach today. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct, and uh, Lord, you'd hide me behind the cross, help people not to focus on me, but uh, on the message and upon your word and upon your will for their life. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, back in the 1800s, there was a man by the name of Philip Brooks, and he was a rising young preacher. And he was an abolitionist as well. And he had the distinct honor and privilege and duty to uh, preach the funeral sermon for President Abraham Lincoln. And can you imagine being asked to do that, um, to be the one to speak at the funeral for President Lincoln? What a, what a tremendous honor. And... Uh, he thought, no doubt, that uh, his message there would be the most famous lines he, would ever, he would, would ever come from his mouth and that he would ever write down. But if that was what he was thinking, he would have been wrong because, you see, shortly afterward, exhausted from years of civil war and longing for some time of rest, Philip Brooks took a sabbatical from preaching uh, to go to Israel to visit the Holy Land, hoping to find some rest and find some peace in his heart. And there as he visited, still insignificant town called Bethlehem, 
He looked out at the landscape at night, and the lines for a poem jumped to his mind. And the beginning words of this poem go, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, a silent star goes by. Well, several years later, he came back to this poem and finished it. His organist, by the name of Louis Redner, added the music to this particular poem. And it was first performed by the children's choir in his church. And very quickly, this song was included in hymnals as a seasonal favorite, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was an obscure, insignificant little town, but actually it was very, very special. Now, most of us, of course, know that Bethlehem was the birthplace of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we know it was in this little humble town that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Many of us also may understand that uh, David was also born in Bethlehem because it was called the city of David. Now, this morning, we're going to take a look at a few of the special... Um, actually, l l let me just say this. Uh, Bethlehem is actually mentioned several times throughout Scripture. In fact, 49 times to be exact. And in many of these instances, we find significant events that took place in Bethlehem that actually would ultimately point to the greatest event that took place in Bethlehem, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And, uh, and this morning, we're going to take a look at a few of these special events and see how they pointed to the greatest occurrence in the history of Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus Christ. So... Uh, first, we're going to look at the first mention. We're going to do a little Bible study today, so hopefully you have your Bibles there. You're ready to turn to some passages as we go through uh, the Word of God. We're going to do these very quickly, so, uh, so hang with me. And uh, we're going to first see, though, something very tragic and sad that happened close to Bethlehem, the very first mention of Bethlehem in the Bible. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. And as you're turning to Genesis 35, we're going to see that uh, Rachel died there. That was the first thing that took place in uh, Bethlehem that is known about in Scripture. Now remember Jacob, who uh, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, uh, married Rachel, and Jacob and, Mar and Rachel got married after ultimately working 14 years for her hand in marriage. Uh, can you imagine working 14 years for your wife's hand in marriage? I can. I would do it in a heartbeat uh, just because I have to uh, be home with her later. So, um, yes, I would, I would work 1,400 years for that woman. But uh, Jacob was willing to do that. Now, Jacob and Rachel tried to have children, but God closed Rachel's womb. And, but finally, they had their very first child and named him Joseph back in Genesis chapter 30. A few years pass, and Rachel is now expecting her second son. Now, let's pick it up here in Genesis 35. Now, the first part of the chapter, Jacob uh, meets with God in Bethel. Then look at verse number 16. The Bible says, They journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Epathrath, and Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. 
Verse 17, it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. Verse 18, it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoi. Or ben, ben, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. You might know. Uh, but his father called him Benjamin. I know how to pronounce that one. And then verse 19, Rachel died and was buried in the way to Epathrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. So in the very first appearance of this obscure little town of Bethlehem, death is mentioned in relation to this place. Okay, so how does that point to the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, while Jesus was born, and we're thankful for that, we know that he was ultimately born for the purpose of death. You see, his death on the cross was necessary for our sins to be paid for. He was born for the purpose of dying. And during the birth of Jesus Christ, there were two details in the birth of Christ that alluded to his future death on the cross of Calvary. The first one was the fact that when he was born, if you recall, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. We read it in Luke, in Luke chapter 2 a few moments ago. What were swaddling clothes? Well, these were similar to the linen cloths that the Jews would wrap around a body before burial. The, and there were spices that were placed in between each wrap of, uh, of, of cloth. So here, even at the birth of Christ, we are reminded as to why he came. He came to die. But then there was one more detail in the birth of Jesus Christ that again pointed to the fact that he was born to die. See, sometime after his birth, while still in Bethlehem, some men came from the east bearing gifts. Gold, frankincense, and the third one was called what? Myrrh. Now, what was myrrh? Myrrh was a um, pr production of Arabia and was obtained from a tree by making incisions in the bark and causing that sap, that, that resin, to flow out. And, and the word myrrh denotes bitterness and was given on account of its great bitterness. It was kind of known for being bitter, and this is what people gave as gifts. But it was also used chiefly in embalming the dead because it had the property of preserving dead bodies from decay. And myrrh would one day be used in the burial of Jesus Christ. So it was given to Jesus at his birth, but it was also given to him at his death. In John chapter 19, the Bible says in verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. They took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So here we see the, the cloth and the myrrh used to bury the body of Jesus Christ. And those were present there at his birth. So myrrh acts as the very bookends to the life of Jesus, as it was given to him at the very beginning of his earthly life and the very end of his earthly life. This all signifies that Jesus was born to die. 
He was meant to be the sacrifice. And it all pointed to the purpose for his arrival. Why did he come? He came so that he could live a perfect and sinless life and then die in our place on the cross of Calvary to take the punishment and wrath of God that we all deserved. So Rachel here, the very first instance that, or very first time Bethlehem is mentioned in Scripture, uh, we see that Rachel died there uh, very close to Bethlehem in childbirth. And one day, 1,700 years later, Jesus would also die in a childbirth of sorts, as his death gives life to not only the Jews, but also to the whole wide world. So the first instance Bethlehem is mentioned is a preview of what's to come 1,700 years later. So, but let's look at the second event in Bethlehem that we see uh, that points to uh, what would ultimately happen there on Christmas night as Jesus, the Son of God, is born. First, first Rachel died there, but secondly, Ruth was redeemed there. If you turn in your Bible to Ruth in chapter number 1, Ruth in chapter number 1, yeah, you go to the first five books of the Bible, then you go to Judges, then we have Ruth. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in, in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the Bible records the account of a family from Bethlehem. A man by the name of Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their, and their two boys. Well, famine came into the land, and, and uh, Elimelech says, You know what? I'm tired of this famine. I'm tired of starving. Let's go to a godless uh, country named Moab and uh, hang out there for a while and get some good food. So they do. Well, verse 2 says the name of the man was Elimelech. I'm sorry, in verse, uh, verse number 3 tells us what ended up happening. Elimelech, Naomi's husband's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. In verse 4, they took them wives of women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and this, the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So here, Naomi and her, uh, her husband and, and boys died there in Moab, and now she is a widow, and now her two daughter-in-laws are now also widows. Well, the, the famine went away, and Naomi said, hey, I'm going um, to go back to Bethlehem. In verse number 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. And by the way, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Very fitting, by the way. Um, well, then, uh, verse number seven, when she went, wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return unto the land of Judah. And we, we, most of us remember the fact that Naomi goes, hey, you, you girls don't want to go here. I mean, this is a totally different culture than what you're used to here in Moab. We're going back, I'm going back to Bethlehem to be with my people. You can stay here with yours. And, and Ruth said, no, 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 I, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. 
In fact, in verse number 16, a very powerful passage or, or verse here where Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. And thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. Evidently in that relationship there, uh, Naomi believed in the God that Naomi served, not the Moab gods. And Ruth said, I want to go with you and I'm willing to... Uh, leave all of that so that I could go and worship uh, the God of the Bible. Well, it was there that uh, Ruth ended up meeting this man by the name of Boaz. And I won't go through the whole story. We don't have time for that today. But uh, the book, book of Ruth is a powerful story of, of, of love, and, and it's, a, it's a romantic story. But, but more than that, it's a picture of, of God's love for us. And Ruth met Boaz, and they fell in love. They couldn't marry, though, because they were, they were not the nearest of kin. And when the nearest kinsman decided not to purchase her property, Boaz talked with him, and Boaz was then given permission to purchase Ruth along with her property. Look in Ruth chapter number 4 and verse number 10. Chapter 4 and verse number 10, it says, Moreover, Ruth... The Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Your witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Epathrath, and be famous in Bethlehem. So Ruth was redeemed in Bethlehem. And uh, Jesus, who was born in a manger in Bethlehem, came to redeem his bride as well, which is the church. First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 18 says, For as much as you know, you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver or gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So Jesus came to Bethlehem to redeem his bride, the church. And so that points to what would ultimately take place uh, so many years later. But thirdly, I want us to see not only was, did Rachel die very close to Bethlehem and, and Ruth was redeemed in Bethlehem, but thirdly, let's look at the fact that David was anointed king in Bethlehem. 1 Samuel, if your Bible is open to Ruth chapter 4, it's the next book, 1 Samuel, but go to chapter 16 in verse number 1. And we know that David was born in Bethlehem. But he was also anointed to be the next king of Israel in Bethlehem. As 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 1 says, The Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite. So Jesse and his family lived in Bethlehem. This obscure, humble little town, Jesse and his boys lived, lived there, and God said, I want you to go, Samuel, and go find Jesse. He says, For I have provided me a king among his sons. And then if you go to verse number 13, 
And I'm going to forgo the whole rest of the passage here, but verse number 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him who was David in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So it was in Bethlehem that David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. Now what would happen in Bethlehem so many years later? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the Jews, uh, would be anointed a king there as well. It was the wise men who said this in uh, Matthew chapter number uh, 2, Where is he that is born the King of the Jews? A few days before his crucifixion, the crowds chanted in Luke 19, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. And although rejected by the people as their king, he was chosen by God. The people in that day, remember, wanted a king to free them from the oppression of Rome. They thought, oh, yes, Jesus is here. He's going to be the king. Uh, what they thought is he's going to be the one who's going to uh, save us from the Romans, and we can have political freedom and economic prosperity, and we don't have to uh, have any more oppression anymore. That's what they thought that he was come to do. But instead, Jesus came to give them an inner peace to be the king of not just their country, but the king of their hearts. Not to set up an earthly kingdom at that particular time. And uh, they did know that he was the king. They spat upon him, mocked him, and beat him. Yet he was born in Bethlehem to be the only king who could rule in the hearts of mankind and bring Salvation to our souls. So this anointing of King David there was just a shadow of what was going to take place so many years later in Bethlehem as Jesus was uh, anointed king. And one of those gifts, we mentioned myrrh a moment ago, but there was another gift that was given gold. That was given to kings. And what a, an appropriate gift for Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So David was anointed king there. But number four, notice here that David was also refreshed there. He was refreshed there. And if you take your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23, so just a few pages over in your Bible to chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. And verse number 14, actually let's pick it up in verse number uh, 8. Here's a record of the mighty men who helped David with all the different things that he experienced on earth. Verse 8 says, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat, on, sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was uh, Adeno, the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. That's quite a thing to put on your resume. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, okay, uh, <laughs> uh, the Ahoite, uh, one of the uh, three mighty men with, with David when they defied the uh, Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel were gone away. He rose, smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord brought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. So this guy held on to the sword so much that when, when, when the battle was over, it was like, I can't let go of this, this sword. My hand is like, you just wrapped around the, the handle of this thing, and I can't let go. It just, 
that's, what that, that's, that's what that means. I like verse number 11. After him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite, and the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. The people fled from the Philistines. The people bailed, but he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the, the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time under the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephidim. Rephahim. And David was then in an hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Here's that town again. Verse 15, And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. The three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it, brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. So the Philistines had taken over Bethlehem. And David was held up at a cave there, and David desired some refreshing water from this well from his hometown. And he was there close to it, and he's like, you know what I could go for right now? Some of you might think, you know, coffee um, or some special soda. David, he wanted some water from this well in Bethlehem that he had had growing up, and it just meant so much to him. It, was, it would be so refreshing in that moment. And he desired to be satisfied with some water from Bethlehem's well. Okay, well, here's the deal. A thousand years later, Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger. And Jesus said to a lady who came to a well in Samaria, here's what he said to her in John chapter 4, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. See, Jesus would be born a thousand years later after David desired to be refreshed from the well of Bethlehem. A thousand years later, the water of life came forth and was born in Bethlehem. John chapter 7 and verse 37, it says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. See, refreshing water is associated with Bethlehem, and this is just a preview of what would take place there a thousand years later. But number five, I want us to see this. The Messiah was promised to be born there 700 years before he was. Turn to Micah chapter number 5. Micah, one of the uh, minor prophets just before the New Testament. Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. And this, of course, is very familiar to those of us who have been saved for a while and, and you're familiar with the prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus Christ, that He would be born in Bethlehem. But in Micah chapter number 5 and verse number 2, the Bible says this, But thou, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, 
from everlasting. See, there's two aspects to this that are pretty amazing. Um, he was supposed to be eternal, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, but yet he was to be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus, who is, fits both of those criteria, he is eternal, and he was born in Bethlehem. John chapter number 1 tells us that he was the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning was the Word. Well, who was the Word? Verse 14 answers that, where it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of His only, only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus, the Son of God, was eternal, yet He came to flesh. He came to, and became flesh and to dwell among us. And there could be absolutely zero mistake as to where the Messiah would be born. It was going to be in this place that Micah prophesied that He would be born 700 years before He did. Now, the chief priests and the scribes, they knew where He was to be born. If you turn to Matthew chapter number uh, 2... Matthew chapter number 2, just a few pages over to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. Well, verse number 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Messiah, Christ, should be born. And they said unto him, Well, that he's to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet Micah. And verse number 6, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So the chief priests, they knew the scriptures. They knew the fact that one day Jesus or the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod learned about that from them. And then when these wise men come to him and say, hey, where, where is he to be born? Uh, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And so now verse 7, Herod when he privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared, he said, go to Bethlehem, because that's where he is to be born. The angels also told the shepherds that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke 2 and verse number 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, by the way, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. A couple verses later, after the angels leave, Verse 15 says, uh, The shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And the Messiah is associated with Bethlehem 700 years before his birth. So as we've gone through the different passages of Scripture that mention Bethlehem, now we haven't looked at all of them. I mean, they mentioned there, it's 49 times in Scripture. Do you really want me to go through all 49 of them this morning? I doubt it. So uh, we went through the major ones where something that took place that was significant in that little obscure town that pointed to the greatest thing that would take place in that town, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Bethlehem was and is an, an ordinary, obscure little town. 
It's not glamorous. It's not a metropolis or anything of that sort. And yet, some extraordinary things took place there. You might think, you know what? I'm just kind of an ordinary guy. Nothing super unique about me. Nothing super amazing about me. And I don't know that God can use me. Well, can I just tell you this? If God can take... If God can take an obscure little place like Bethlehem and do extraordinary things there, God can take an ordinary person like you and me and do amazing and extraordinary things with you and me. So if you're here going, ah, God can't use me, there's nothing I can do for God's glory that is really all that amazing. I'm telling you, God delights to use the ordinary and the obscure. Why? So that He gets the glory. So that those who are all talented and, and uh, have this you know, amazing personality and all of those things, uh, they're, they're more tempted to kind of pat themselves on the back and say, well, aren't I so good? But when God is able to take someone out of obscurity and someone, out of, um, someone who's just ordinary and do something extraordinary with them, then God is the one that gets the glory. I was talking yesterday with uh, one of our dear church members, Miss Vicki Hensley. She's been going through some difficult things in her life with her health. Um, she had a hip replacement um, several weeks ago, and there has been tremendous complications with the recovery of that surgery. So much so that she told me yesterday, she said, Pastor, do you know that I almost died? with this recent complication, and I said, Ms. Vicki, I didn't realize it was that bad. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm so glad that, that God pulled you through, and, 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 and I believe that God still has something for you to do. And she's like, that's what people have been telling me. And I know that God does have something for me. And, and look, it's not like Ms. Vicki's going to go and play the piano uh, tonight in the service. She can't do that. She can't teach a Sunday school class right now. Her health won't allow her to do any of those things. But you know what she said? She said, I pray for you, Pastor, and your family every day. Can I tell you? You may think that's just an ordinary thing. Oh, from my perspective, it's an extraordinary thing. It's something that I am so very thankful for. You know, God still has something for her to do, and, 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 and she hasn't really been out and about all that much since COVID took place with all of her health issues, and she's not been able to go to the store for a couple years, she told me over the phone. But God still has something for her to do, and God has something for everybody in this church to do. It doesn't matter how ordinary or extraordinary you think you are, God has something for you to do. I've also mentioned that Bethlehem means... House of Bread. And it's pretty amazing that later on, Jesus, who would be born in Bethlehem, would be later call himself the Bread of Life, there in John chapter 6. Right after he uh, serves the multitudes there on that hillside and feeds 5,000 people plus, 5,000 men plus women and children, the Bread of Life. He said, I'm the Bread of Life. I'm the one that's going to be broken for you. I'm the one that's going to be sufficient for you. And back when we read Luke chapter 2, the text of, for today, um, I'm going to go ahead and turn back over there. Luke 2 and verse number 7. 
So she brought forth her, her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a, what's the next word? Manger. Jesus was laid in a manger, away in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Now a manger is a food trough. It was built so that animals could come and feed. And that's where Jesus, the bread of life, was placed in a manger, in a food trough. Basically saying to this world, all who would like to, you may receive, you may come. But here's the deal. He's not going to force you to come. He's not going to force you to take it. Let's say this morning, um, I, have, I have a loaf of bread here that I brought from my house. And uh, this is this would make a good sandwich. I have a loaf of bread here. And, and let's say this morning that uh, the Brother Blake hasn't been, hasn't been eating. Just not paying him enough. And uh, he just hasn't been eating. And uh, he, he's been like a week without food. And he's super hungry. But I have here this loaf of bread. And so, Brother Blake, go ahead and come on up here. And he's super hungry. And he is just can't wait for the sermon to be over so that maybe he could go out into the dump, dumpster dive, maybe, and try to find some food. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, you know, he's just as poor as could be. But I have here this bread. And I say, Brother Blake, I appreciate all you do around here. I want to give you some bread. And you know what? Brother Blake has to do something with this bread, doesn't he? He has to take it. <laughs> He's like, I actually do want some bread right now. <laughs> but if he doesn't take it, this bread does him zero good. But you can go ahead and have it. He takes it. He's glad to have it. <laughs> Might want to check it for mold or whatever. I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't really inspect it before bringing it up here. Does it taste good? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, you can go ahead and be seated. Here, here's the thing. The, the reason I do that is because all of us in ourselves are poor and needy and without hope. And God sent the bread of life, placed him in the manger, a feeding trough for all to come and receive. But he does zero good if you don't receive. All of us need this, but it only does us good when we receive it. So can I ask you this question? Have you received the bread of life in your life? Has there been a time in your life when you realized your sinful condition before a holy and righteous God? And that you came to the point where you knew you could not save yourself and that you absolutely needed a Savior, the bread of life. Has there been a time when you received the gift of God, which is eternal life, by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? My wife and I uh, uh, last week got to go to Branson and enjoy some uh, time at a preacher's uh, couple's retreat. And, uh, and, and I, got, I thought it was going to be like 
you know, this really encouraging. I got preached at. And uh, it was convicting. And I'm thankful for that. But part of the time, too, we got to enjoy some just time with just the two of us. And we got to go to uh, Silver Dollar City. And uh, last time we went back in, uh, back in th- around Thanksgiving time, uh, Julie got to be the Aunt Julie because we had a bunch of family and there was little ones. And so she kind of hung out with the little ones while I hung out with the bigger kids. And we got to, I got to ride on a lot of the rides. She didn't get to ride on a lot, on a lot of the rides Thanksgiving. So I said, hey, this time we're going to go on some rides. And we get to go on Wildfire and Time Traveler. And, you know, every time you get into one of those roller coasters, what are you doing? You're placing your faith, a lot of faith, in the engineers that designed this, this dumb ride. And, and you're, you're putting your faith in the employees who maintain it to make sure they're tightening all the bolts. And, and that, that, that thing that comes over and kind of keeps you there, that it's not going to fly open when you're going uh, in the loop or whatever you're going to do. You put a lot of faith in that, and, but, and, and, and most people are willing to do that, but when it comes to placing your faith in Christ, people are a little reluctant to do that. I'm telling you, putting your, hand, your life in the hands of Jesus Christ makes so much more sense than putting your life in the hands of people that you've never met uh, to uh, design this roller coaster for your safety <laughs> and entertainment. So have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the bread of life? Now remember that song I mentioned at the beginning of the message, O Little Town of Bethlehem? Well, there's a little bit more to the story. Because you see, there was one child who wasn't born yet when he wrote that, when Philip Brooks wrote that, that poem. And, and yet would find tremendous meaning in that song. Her name was Helen Keller, the famous educator who was born blind and deaf. And she met Brooks years later, and he was the one who explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to her for the very first time. Through her teacher and translator, Anne Sullivan, she told Brooks, I've always known there was a God, but until now, I've never known what his name was. And the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, has a third verse. We didn't sing it this morning. And it was written before Brooks had met Helen Keller, but it captures perfectly the joy of salvation arriving to a deaf and blind child whose ears could not hear his coming, but whose heart had long recognized his presence. The words to the third verse will be on the screen here. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. And for Helen Keller, when she may not have been able to hear him, she may not be able to see him, but she was still able to allow him to enter into her heart. Friend, has he entered into your heart? Has he entered into your soul? If not, then why not allow him in today? 
during this Christmas season. It's, Christmas season is wonderful. We all enjoy all the different festivities, going to see the lights and going to have all these parties and family gatherings and the food and the fun and all of it is great. But if we miss the main reason for the season, that God came to dwell not just among us, but in you, then you've missed the whole point of Christmas. I'm thankful for Christmas cookies. I'm looking forward to Wednesday night. But that's not what it's all about, friend. Has there been a time in your life where you allowed the gift of God to come into your life? If so, let's give thanks for this unspeakable gift that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15. And look, there's going to be gift giving and gift receiving as we go through the rest of this month. And I, I like that part. It's fun. But let's take some time to give thanks for the greatest gift of all, the gift of Jesus Christ. And then let's tell others about this gift. See, just as that bread was uh, broken on that day when Jesus fed the multitudes there in John chapter 6, there was plenty for everyone there. So much so that they had leftovers. So, look, this gift is sufficient for me, but it's also sufficient for you. And it's sufficient for your family and for your friends and for your neighbors and for your coworkers. So let's go tell them. So let's take these flyers that we have in the bulletin and take these out this week because not only is it an invitation to our church, but on the back, there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's take this message to those around us. I'm thankful for this little town of Bethlehem. Kind of a, as I said, humble, obscure, insignificant little town. But God did some pretty extraordinary things there in that town, didn't he? And you may think, I'm not very special. God can do some special things with people who are ordinary. You read through the Word of God, you see how God did some amazing things with people who are just normal, just like you and I. God can do some great things with you as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the little town of Bethlehem that we see highlighted throughout Scripture. And those things that you mentioned earlier on all really did point to what would take place there on Christmas night when the Savior of the world was born, when God became flesh and dwelt among us. What a, what a holy, holy moment that was. Oh, holy night that was. God, I pray that you would help us to receive the real reason for this season. There's one here today that has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. May they place their faith in Jesus today and be born again. Make the greatest decision of their life. For those here who... Have made that decision, Lord. Help us to be grateful this Christmas season for what you did for us. Help us, Lord, to not get so distracted with all the different events and things going on that we forget to give you thanks for the most important gift of all. And then, Lord, help us during this season to take that gift and share it with those around us because, Lord, it's sufficient not just for all of my needs but for everybody else's needs as well. 
So help us, Lord, to go and tell it on the mountain and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. Help us, Lord, uh, to be good uh, Christmas missionaries this year.